0: If you brought a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to our New Testament passage this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have them in the pew rack. You can find our text on page 825. If you don't have a Bible, that Bible in the pew rack is yours. Take it home with you. We have plenty where those came from. Uh, It's our gift to you, uh, so you can have a Bible to read on your own this week. Our text, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Sunday by Sunday, preaching the next passage in Matthew's gospel. And we come this morning to chapter 20, a parable entitled here, Labors uh, in the Vineyard. This parable could actually have been part two of the sermon last week. It flows right out of the confrontation after Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler. You remember this. The guy wants to know what he can do to be saved And Jesus says, just keep the law. Just keep keeping the law. And the guy's sad because he can't keep the law. And then Peter asks this telling question. He says, well, if if he can't be saved, who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. But then Peter gets a little upset because he wonders, we've left everything. We've done all this good work. Are we not going to get rewarded for it? Jesus answers, and then he tells a parable. He's a great teacher. So this parable is answering Peter's question. He gave him the reason in the last couple of verses, and now he tells a story to drive the point home. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, and here is our point. Many who are first will be last. It's the last verse of chapter 19. The last will be first. Follow along, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first." And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, show us what it means this morning to be last. Show us, more importantly, what it meant that your Son, who was first, became last, so that we might be counted as first. Give us the joy, the thanksgiving, the gratitude, and the hope of a great salvation found only in Christ today, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you miss the days when going to a restaurant and leaving a tip was a whole lot easier than it is now. (laughs) If you're like me, you now hate leaving tips at restaurants. I used to be a waiter. I knew what it was like to collect tips. And I, now I knew what it was like to leave tips. You just wait till the end of the meal. You see how it goes. You leave some money. They, keep, they get the extra. Maybe you leave your credit card. By the time they see what you're leaving them, taillights, right? You're out of there. Maybe you drop some change in a jar and they don't quite know how much. Now they turn that iPad around on you, Right? And you know they're just looking at you, and you have no idea if they've done anything good for your food or not. But you know what they will do if you don't tip them well with your food, right? Maybe if you're with someone else, they're watching you. They're looking over your shoulder. What kind of tip, my friends? What kind of tip is the pastor going to leave, right? <laughs> what are we doing in those moments, right? We are being judged. And we are judging others' generosity, right? We feel that sense of being judged for our generosity. Are we going to give enough? Or being judged by our friend thinking, is he giving too much? This text before us is about judging generosity. But y'all, we're not the ones being judged for our generosity. We're actually the ones who are in danger of being guilty of judging God for his generosity. What we find in this text is a generous God beyond human comprehension, so generous that we feel like he's unfair. And we want to warn him, and we want to rebuke him, we want to tell him, ah, it's too generous, God. That's enough, right? And Jesus, in this parable, is blowing up the limits that we put on the generosity of God. In our minds, I hope to show you that you limit the goodness and the grace and the generosity of your God. And Jesus stretches those limits so that we become uncomfortable. But hopefully we see just how good and how gracious and how generous our God is this morning. That's what I want to show you. Jesus stretches the limits we put on God's generosity. I don't have an outline for you. We're just going to walk through the parable And then I'm going to ask some hard questions. So I'll give you some some handholds to take some notes as we go. We're just going to work through our parable. And then we're going to ask some hard questions that Jesus, I believe, asks us in these words. The parable is entitled, at least in my Bible, Laborers in the Vineyard. Now most of you know this. The titles above the words in our Bible, those aren't inspired. Those are not given by God. Uh, those are added by Bible translators and uh, editors of the Bible. And so this parable has been called the labors in the vineyard. I want to give you a different title for the parable this morning. I want to call it the parable of the generous master. The parable is not about the labors. It is, but it's really about the master. It's about how the laborers poorly respond to the generosity of their master, but it's about the master. The parable of the generous master the first seven verses shows us a normal work day in the ancient Near East, just a, a normal day of workers, laborers in a field, a master overseeing them. Right? I mean the details are fairly obvious. Right? There's a vineyard, and the master can't treat or care for that vineyard all in, by himself on that day. So he has to go hire laborers. I picture here it's harvest time. Maybe not, but seems appropriate for harvest time. Needs some extra hands. And so he goes out and he gets some laborers to help him. And as the day goes on, he realizes he needs more. And he gets some more. And as the day goes on, he gets more. And more and more until the very end of the day, the work's done, the sun goes down, and he pays everybody out. Right? Sounds like a pretty normal day. A couple contextual clues tell us there's more here than going on than just a normal work day. Now, one of, the th- one of the problems with understanding this parable is the time. Right? This Jewish reckoning of time is unfamiliar to us. These different hours of the day. So, let's just work through that real quick. The, the, first, the beginning of the day is when the Master gets the first workers. We're gonna, this is when the sun comes up. This is early in the morning. And in the Jewish reckoning of time, the time right then is zero, essentially. That's the beginning of the day. For some reason, we begin the day in the middle of the night. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Right? They begin the day... When the day begins, when the sun comes up. So those guys start out at six o'clock. They're going to work for 12 hours. Their day ends when the sun goes down at six o'clock. So we've got 12 hours, right? Sunrise to sunset. The first group's going to be out there that whole time. Then as time goes along, we go hour one, hour two, hour three. The third hour of the day, which in our math today is nine o'clock in the morning, goes to get some more people. Those guys start working. We count three more hours. The sixth hour of the day, six hours from sunrise is noon. Three more hours is nine o'clock. I'm I'm sorry, nine o'clock in their time, three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm already confused, right, in our time. And then we keep going. We got the 11th hour. So he goes and gets some guys at the 11th hour. So this would be five o'clock. They start working, and the workday ends at six. So these are the guys that start at the 11th hour. They work one of the 12 possible hours of the day, all right? Now, the other part to understand this parable is how much they get paid. So let's go back to the guys that start in the morning. The guys that start at dawn, they have agreed to work for a denarius. That doesn't mean anything to us. A denarius is how much in that day a day laborer was paid. Work for a full day, you get paid a denarius. These guys agree to it, it's a good wage, right? They work a full day of work, They get paid a full day of pay, right? These guys should be grateful that they have a job that day. They have a fair master, a fair boss. He pays well. They start the day promised they'll receive a denarius at the end of the day. Well, then we get the next group of guys, the the guys that start in the third hour. We read of them, how much are they going to get paid? The master tells them in verse 4, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So he determines what's right, and they trust that the master will give them what is right, which probably means he'll, they'll get paid for working from 9 o'clock, all, uh, from 9 o'clock our time to 6 o'clock our time, three quarters of a day. So they'll probably earn three quarters of a denarius. They're probably happy about that. Same thing happens with the guys that start at noon. Same thing that happens to the guys that start at 3, same thing happens to the guys that start at 11, right? So they're all just probably assuming this is a fair. Master, he's going to pay us a fair wage for the hours we work today. It all sounds pretty standard, pretty normal. I want you to look, though, in particularly about the last group of guys he picks up in verse 6. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? Now, what does that make you think? Because it makes me think these guys are lazy. Everybody else is working. What are they doing? They're just standing around. Their answer, though, is that no one has hired us. To me, this means with their answer, they've actually been waiting all day for a job. And every time the master shows up, he picks other people, not them. These are probably the worst workers in the group. I mean, no offense, but these are probably the old guys, right? Or the two young guys, maybe. Other side as well. These guys are weak, right? Maybe, they're, uh, maybe they have uh, a limp, right? Maybe they have some problem, so nobody wants them to work. I mean, you'd think that Master would hire the strong guys at the beginning, right? So as the day goes on, the group is whittled. I mean, show of ha- don't show your hands. Who's been the last person picked in a sport game, right? <laughs> I have. And it is brutal. They just keep passing over you. They keep passing over you. It hurts your pride. For these guys, it hurts their wallet, Right? They, they need to get some food. They're day laborers. They don't have vineyards. They don't have their own land. So our master hires the least appealing workers last. That's normal. It's a normal day. Verse 8 begins the abnormal part. Because it's a normal work day, it's an abnormal pay day. All right? The day ends, it's time to pay up. The Old Testament required uh, the Jewish uh, Landowners to pay their day labors at the end of the day. Not wait till the end of the week. Not wait till the end of the month. You pay them every day. They work for you. The Old Testament doesn't say the order that you pay them in. Strange order here. The master instructs the foreman to pay his workers in reverse order. Right? And so they pay the ones who started most recently first. The only reason I could think he's doing this is because Jesus wants to make a lesson. He was to point out the heart of the first gas. So the 11th hour men start, and they're probably expecting one-twelfth of a denarius. That would be fair pay, right? They get a full denarius. They are paid as if they worked a full day. That's key. They are paid a full day's wage, even though they worked one-twelfth of the day. So, the guys in the back of the line, they're rubbing their hands, right? If the guy in the front gets a full day and he worked one-twelfth of a day, I'm going to get like 12 full days of pay when I finally get to the front of the line. Now, pause. Isn't this what Peter was asking in the last chapter? We left everything and followed you, what are we going to get, right? What's our reward going to be like? We don't see about the other workers, but presumably we're going through, they're each getting paid, And then we get to verse 10. The guys who came first. Now, when those hired workers came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. They're surprised at this. The disciples to whom Jesus is telling the parable are surprised at this. And I know you've heard this before, but you should be surprised at this. This is surprising, this is uncomfortable. This doesn't make sense. If the master is supposed to be God, this should legitimately cause us, before we get to the end of the parable, to ask questions about the justice and the goodness and the fairness even of God. That's how Jesus sets up the parable to plant that question, that lack of comfort in your mind. Because he's trying to show us that the generosity of this master is otherworldly. That this is such strange generosity, it transcends our human ideas of fairness and generosity. We can't make sense of this. None of us would do this because none of us is God. The workers complain, verses 11 and 12. And let me tell you this, you would have complained too, right? All right, kids, I want you to think of something for a second. Let's say you go home from church today. You've done a great job. You've listened to a long sermon, right? You go home and you take your nap, and then it's dinner time. And what do you get for dinner but a big scoop of green beans on your plate, right? (laughs) Yuck, right? But dad says, eat your green beans, and I got some good vanilla ice cream in the freezer. And so you just, all right, I love ice cream. I'm just going to, you know, just go at it, right? Just shovel those green beans down. Time for ice cream. Then you look up, and what's your brother doing? He's going to get one little piece, one tiny little green bean and eat it, right? And dad says, all right, cool, ice cream for everybody. What are you thinking right then? Why did I eat those green beans, right? If dad's going to give ice cream to everybody, what's the point of eating those nasty green, no offense, green bean cooks out there. Uh, You can't make a good green bean. I'm sorry. I will die on that hill. That's not fair, right, kids? That is not fair. And so they complain. Actually, they grumble, verse 11 says. They say, these last guys worked only one hour. They only ate one miserable green bean, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I mean, we get it with these guys, right? I mean, Not only did the 11th hour men come so late, they came when it was cool outside, right? The hard work's been done. They've barely broken a sweat. And here they are getting their full... Days pay. But look what they their complaint. You made them equal with us. As if they're saying, but don't you know we're better? Don't you know we deserve more? And how could you make them, the guys that came last, the old guys, the young guys, the weak guys, the hurt guys, you made them just like us strong guys that work all day. That's not fair. And it, it seems to, upon first read, sort of violates our views of justice, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, y'all, I wrestled with my heart for a couple days this week reading this passage thinking, is, is this something telling us that God's not just? Because this doesn't seem just to me. Or is it a different J word? Is it just jealousy? Is it our jealousy dressed up as accusing God of injustice? Look how the master defends himself in the face of this grumbling. He starts, friend, now, let me tell you something real quick. That sounds nice, but you don't want someone in the Bible to tell you friend, right? That's how they begin a sentence. It's not gonna go, they're not going to say something nice after that. He is rebuking them. He is, of course, gently rebuking them. He says, friend. And then we hit his defense. And his defense comes in two parts. He says to them who he is, the master is. And he says, number one, I am just. And number two, I am good. You are accusing me of injustice. I'm telling you the answer is that I am just and I am good. Look at how he answers the first part. I am just, verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. There's the idea of wrong. Right? He said he's going to pay right. And here he says, I am not doing wrong. I think in, in some sense we can read into this almost a legal complaint. Right? It's almost like the workers are calling in HR, right? They're calling in their union rep. All right, they're going to file an official workers' comp, right, complaints. And the master answers, I have done nothing illegal. In fact, I have done nothing wrong. In fact, you got what you agreed to. You were fine with it in the morning. You have been paid what we agreed to. I have done no wrong. I am just. I am right. Take your money and go home. Who He says, take your complaint and get out of here, right? You have been paid. Take, verse 14, what belongs to you and go. It would be enough just for the master to be just. But his second defense is that he is good. Verse 14, I choose to give this last to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He can do whatever he wants with his money. And he chooses to be generous with it. Now let's pause here. This is not a manual on starting and running your own small business, okay? I mean, teachers, you will frustrate your kids if you just give them all A's no matter what, okay? This is not a model for us to live by. This is showing us the generosity of God, the goodness of God. Because he chooses to give to the neediest of the workers who have done the least. And here's here's where we need to blow up the selfish mindset of the early guys. Because they think they're out something. They think they've lost something. They think they've sacrificed something. Let me tell you, there's only one person in this entire parable who has sacrificed anything. And that's the master. The first guy's got what is fair to them. The last guy's got what is good to them. The only one to lose out on anything is the master who gave more money than he got back. Everyone in all of creation either receives from the hand of God what is just for what they have done or beyond what is just. Out of the goodness and generosity of God, the master gives without return. Do you see that? He's the one that makes the sacrifice. He's the one that overpays. He's the one that's out money so that others might be blessed. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like this master. It's like this master because this master tells us two things about God. It tells us that God is just and that God is good. God is just. He will reward the righteous, and he will punish the wicked. That God will vindicate and God will avenge. That the Lord of all the world will do right. Now we sometimes doubt that because that doesn't come on our timetable. We want it to come sooner. But God promises in his word that he will do what is just. It's that image You've seen of, uh, of a court with Lady Justice, this woman figure with a robe holding scales, right? These two scales judging, and oftentimes she's rendered with a blindfold on. And we, we want our earthly justice to be like that, right? And we live in a nation that prizes justice, right? We have courts. We have a government system. We have a, a whole branch of government around judging and justice, we have a Supreme Court that's really, really hard to get onto, right? And we have these impartial judges that should only do what is right. None of you are laughing yet, <laughs> because what's the reality? They don't always do what's right, even in, a, in an entire government system set up for them to do what is right. We know that they err. We know that even even the best earthly justice fails. So for God to be like the master who to, does right and does not do wrong, that's a world we want to live in. That's a God who we delight to worship and serve. It is it would be enough if God were simply perfectly just. We would have eternal reasons to praise him. But he's not only just because he is also good. He is also good. When God gives riches to those who do not deserve it, he shows his goodness. When he pays us more than the one twelfth of the hour that we have worked, he is showing us his goodness. When God, out of his sovereign plan, chooses to bless certain people, it is out of the goodness and the grace and the generosity of his heart. He is in control of who and how he blesses and who are we to look at God like the workers and tell him how, what he can do with his money. Because God, of all the people in the story, there's only one making the sacrifice. And in all of creation... When we get what we deserve, or we get something better, there's only one who makes the sacrifice, and that's God. Because we only get the good because he sacrificed his son. We only get the good because God is willing to take the payment and the debt onto himself. How do undeserved people get blessed? Because the one who deserved it got cursed in Christ. Jesus is telling us of his own father. He's telling us of what he's going to do so that his own father will bless. So that his own father will demonstrate his goodness to the very ends of the earth. Who could complain about this? right? Who could grumble about this? And yet I want you to see the final question. I want you to see the final word that Jesus, I'm sorry, that the master in the parable gives to the workers. I think verse 16 is actually Jesus going back and speaking. That's his concluding word. Verse 15 is the conclusion of what the master speaks in the parable. Here's the question to you, friend. Do you begrudge God's generosity? Do you begrudge God's generosity? What does that mean? Maybe your Bible has a footnote. The the literal translation here is like this. Is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because I, the master, God, is good? Are you jealous? Are you envious? Are you resentful? Are you begrudging because God is good? Are you looking over God's shoulder when he's giving a big tip to someone that doesn't deserve it and you are begrudging him for his generosity? You see, it's, it's, it's easy for us when God's good to me and he's just to you. I can live in that world, Right? <laughs> It's harder when he's just with me and he's good with you. That's a really hard world for me to live in. That's a harder equation, isn't it? How do we limit God's grace? We limit God's grace to others. Let me take you to another scene, a little time travel back to Nineveh in the Old Testament. You know the story of Jonah. You kids know the story. Jonah's the guy with the big fish, right? Well, he gets gobbled up by a big fish. Because he won't do what God says, which is to preach repentance in Nineveh. Because he doesn't like the Ninevites. So the fish gobbles him up and he prays in the fish. And the fish spits him back up. And God says, all right, now go to Nineveh. And he does. And he preaches repentance in the midst of a wicked people. And here's what's incredible. They believe. And they repent. And God doesn't punish them. It's wonderful. Except chapter 4 of Jonah begins like this. Jonah is displeased with God. And Jonah says, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, away from Nineveh, for I knew that you are a gracious God. He's like shaking with anger. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so angry because God is gracious to an undeserving people. He can't even live in a world that justice and fairness doesn't matter and God is good to bad people. But do you note who Jonah's mad at? He's not mad at the Ninevites, he's mad at God. Who are the guys that show up right at the sunrises to work, they're not mad at the 11th hour, men. They're mad at the master. They are mad at God is who he says he is. That God blesses and God is good and he is merciful and gracious. Jonah resents God for loving, undeserving people, for loving other nations. We would be hard-pressed to affirm that that's what we struggle with in our own hearts but i wonder sometimes if we are ready for god to be good to our neighbors (laughs) or is that going to bug us a little bit are we ready for god to shower his grace and mercy upon our enemies are we going to be just a little frustrated by that because we've been in church and not doing bad things for a long time god (laughs) It's not only limiting God's grace to others outside the church you remember dear Martha of Mary and Martha and she served the Lord and her sister left her alone to serve him and she went to Jesus she didn't get mad at her sister she got mad at God Lord do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone have you ever been frustrated that other people aren't serving in the church as much as you are have you ever been annoyed by that? Does it ever bother you that the volunteer list, and you seem to be on every volunteer list, is shorter than it should be? And maybe you're going to lunch today, and someone's worked all morning and yesterday to get the house ready and the meal ready and the lunch ready, and you haven't done anything, and you're both going to sit down there and eat together, and it's going to be great. What's in the heart, possibly, of the Marthas in the room? There's a danger of Martha-like Bitterness. For those of us who serve more, or those of y'all, I should say, who serve more, those who sacrifice more, what is causing you this morning to begrudge the generosity of God? I think of a different picture. Go back to that field for a minute, and the master comes and he hires a few guys to go work first thing in the morning. And they look back and they say, man, I'm glad we got a job, but I feel for my friends who don't get a job yet. And then they work for a while, some more friends show up, and then they're but they don't see the guys who really need the money show up. And they keep working and more guys show up. But the, the real poor one among them, he hasn't shown up yet. And finally, they start asking the master, hey, can you get those other guys? I'm going to get a denarius and that's great. But can you get some other guys in here to bless? Can you get some of those guys that can't really work very hard and don't really deserve it? Bring them, can you? And, and maybe, maybe you could give them what you give me. And the truck shows up with the old guys and the young guys and the weak guys at like 11.55. And the guys working in the field are celebrating. Because more undeserving people are going to be blessed. The prayer of the Christian looks like this. Father, go get some more people to bless. (laughs) Go get some more people. You're right, I'll move a couple pews up. Get some more people to fill up those other pews. That they might hear the gospel and the grace of Jesus. But this question gets just a little more subtle and a little more insidious because we don't only limit God's grace to other people, we also can be guilty of limiting God's grace to ourselves. Let me take you to a different field. This is in Luke 15. This is the field of the home of the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He takes the money and he leaves. He spends it all. He hates his father. He comes back. Dad welcomes him with open arms. He gives him everything. They kill the fattened calf. They have a feast. But you remember the older son still out in the field when this happens. He's working, right? The guy that's not working gets the feast. Does it sound like the other parable? The guy that's been working doesn't get the feast. And he Jesus tells us in the parable, he hears music and dancing. And he's angry. And he refused to go in. And his father came out, and he's angry at his father. He says, look how I've served you. I never disobeyed you, yet you you didn't give me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Do you see this heart of bitterness has grown up so that this incredible father, the son, thinks of him as only loving him because of what the older son has done. Here is the spiritual danger is that you do good stuff and you begin to believe God loves you because of the good stuff that you do. Y'all, what kind of God is it that only loves the people that are good to him? The worst part, then, is we live our whole lives thinking God loves us because we're good and we keep doing good stuff and good stuff. And then something happens and we don't do good stuff anymore. And all of a sudden, who's God to us? We have heard the gospel preached. We've read in his word, but we have created this works religion in our minds so that we only associate God's love for us when we're good. And when we mess up, we cannot imagine that God still loves us. We cannot imagine that God is good to us. And so we don't go to God. We default To believing the lie, that God only loves those who deserve it. God's grace to the undeserving others and ourselves should be the cause for our everlasting rejoicing. How do you begrudge God's generosity? As the parable that Jesus tells ends, the debate about who the parable applies to begins. And there's all sorts of debate. Who's in this parable? Who's who? Who are the guys who show up early? Who are the midday guys? Who are the late guys? There's all, all these commentaries, all these guesses about it, right? One possibility is the guys that earn it are the Jewish people. They've kept the law. They've been faithful. And everybody else that gets in, this is now the Gentiles. They keep coming in late. And you and, and, and we, if we trust in Christ, we're, we're late. We're somewhere afternoon. I don't know when we are. <laughs> But certain people earned it, other people don't. Another view, maybe closer to the truth, is that the guys who earned it are the 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus is responding to Peter's bad question. He's saying, okay, well, you think you've earned it, let's just imagine you've earned it for a little bit, and everybody else is going to come in later. Don't be harsh towards the people that aren't martyrs, that aren't the disciples. That's closer to the truth. But the truth is just as simple as it can be. The guys who earn it are the guys who earn it. And everybody else are the ones who don't earn it. And everybody else is everybody else. (laughs) Because the way the parable should go is there's one guy working. There's only one worker that shows up at dawn to work. And he works all day. And he does all the work. And he labors under the heat of the sun. And y'all, we all show up in the back of the pickup at 11.59 and 59 seconds. And he says, go to the front of the line. There's a denarius waiting for you. I have earned it. For you, it is as if you worked the whole day and you did nothing. We are all 11th hour men and only Christ has earned the wage. He gives it to you. Just take it today. Stop working. Stop trying to earn it. Receive the rich blessing of God. Our God is just, and our God is good. So rejoice, for in his kingdom, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's pray. Our Lord, how we praise you and rejoice today that you sent your only son, that you sent him as a sacrifice, you sent him to live perfectly in our place, to earn that which we could never earn, to gift us a salvation that could never be ours by works. Lord, I pray you would put to death in our own hearts the the, the attitude and the questions and the spirit that begrudge you. Lord, we praise you for your justice even more. We praise you today for your goodness and give us hearts that rejoice that welcome the gift of faith and pray, Lord, go out to the marketplace because there's some more needy people and bring them in to get what they don't deserve just as we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.